ultimately, all I want to do is make it easier to have an uncomfortable discussion mm. about your own mental health. I wanted to demonstrate that if I could stand up in front of an audience of a few hundred people and disclose this undisclosable story, and someone in the audience could be brave enough to pick up the phone and talk to someone when they were feeling down or thinking they needed help or were having suicidal ideation. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. That was a much better curtsy, Dana. (laughs) And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And this week we've got a really, really fantastic conversation episode, yeah, um, with Orlando De Silva, who is a widely respected member of the legal profession in Ontario. He has been the president of the Ontario Bar Association, where he focused his term on growing awareness of Mm -hmm. mental health challenges for lawyers, an issue that he speaks about in some detail in the following conversation. Orlando has also been a lawyer in government for much of his career and has just assumed the role of chief administrator of the Administrative Tribunal's Support Service of Canada. Um, Unfortunately, this has meant that he has had to resign his recent position as a bencher of the Law Society of Ontario. However, as you will hear in the following conversation, he remains very committed to the goals he set out in his election campaign to improve access to justice in Ontario and across Canada. Yeah, and that was a campaign that really attracted the attention of of a lot of self-represented litigants Mm -hmm. because of how outspoken he was about the need to do better. So we're really excited about Orlando being in this important new position in relation to tribunals and the supports that they provide for people who are representing themselves. I really found this an incredibly moving conversation, Mm. I have to say. It was very personal. It was very authentic. And really, I think that Orlando epitomizes what we've tried to do so often on the podcast, which is to introduce people, showcase people who've taken some personal risks in Mm. order to do the right thing. And I think that Orlando is is really a, a fantastic example of that. And To be honest, he also represents the kind of lawyer, honorable, truthful, yet pragmatic and realistic, that at NSRLP, we would love to see taking care of people all over Canada. Yes. So let's listen to Orlando. Hello, Orlando. Oh, hi, Julie. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Nice to hear you, and thank you very much indeed for doing this. Amongst the many accomplishments of your career, I think one of the things that you are particularly well-known for and beloved for is your willingness to be so outspoken and public about your own mental health challenges, which, as we know, is still a very counterculture thing to talk about openly in the legal profession, and might I say especially by somebody who is uh, seen as such a widely admired and accomplished practitioner. So I want to begin by asking you if you could say something about why you decided to take that step of being public about this. And maybe could you also say something about what are the types of cultural changes that you're hoping to inspire? 
I was uh, leading up to becoming uh, president of the OBA. Um, back in 2012, I was elected as second VP. And I just say for our listeners, the Ontario Bar Association. That's Please right. carry right on. That's right. And in the two years, uh, it's a two-year ladder to president, I was trying to think of how I could make my one-year term meaningful. And there were so many thoughts I had that seemed to diminish into thinking of myself as merely um, a caretaker of the organization and its uh, 16 or 17,000 lawyer members. But I thought I had, as president, the opportunity to have an audience that I would never or may never have again. So I wanted to do more up to that point and well beyond, in fact, uh, until the eve of the start of my term in office. I had kept a secret the fact that I suffered from a persistent, uh, chronic, and episodically major depression uh, that included, uh, in 2008, uh, at its nadir, um, a suicide attempt. And I thought that, you know, there was something that I could probably do there because I had a sense that there were other people who were experiencing in the profession the same things. Who were suffering as well. They were quiet about it. They were very quiet. There was no discussion uh, at all that I could see, except from few brave souls who were no longer practicing law. And I felt which is telling, isn't it? That that's where they felt it's telling, yes, and it's discouraging for people uh, who are looking for hope uh, because they want to know, in my experience, that they can have uh, this kind of issue mental health issue, depression, anxiety, and still have a fulfilling, meaningful uh, career and life. Yes, and uh, I thought, you know, I, I. I've accomplished enough in my career that um, I'm not really taking a significant risk in admitting this. I also thought I work for the government of Ontario and in in the public sector, so I'm a bit safer than, a lot safer, in fact, than a private practitioner who may uh, lose clients. And I kept circling back to this idea. Now, I, I... wasn't confident enough to just do it. I had to talk to some people who cared about me and my career and stuff, and and they all said don't. Oh, really? Because they wanted to protect you? Yeah, they said that it would Mm. hurt my career. I wouldn't get the files I'm used to getting. Um, When I advanced the discussion, I actually broached the subject with uh, others beyond my immediate circle of uh, supporters saying you could hurt the reputation of the profession. You could uh, diminish the brand of the Ontario Bar Association. And, and can I just ask you, Orlando, because I'm looking at this and it's breaking my heart. And I'm, how did you feel when you heard people say, admitting that you are a human being and you have this additional challenge that you struggle with is going to diminish the reputation of your profession? I had two reactions. Uh, one was to reflect negatively on myself and think, yes, they're right. Yeah, yeah. And um, all of that. this is true. But on the other hand, I thought, if I'm not going to do it, who, who will? Is? Yeah. And, and I still 
came back to the feeling that I'm fairly safe where I am, and maybe they're all right and this will go nowhere, but I won't regret having decided not to do it. You know, I will just try. And you think you would have regretted not I, trying? I think if I had kept silent, uh, my depression would have been a secret for another five years. It'd still mm. be a secret today. But I, 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 I'm so glad that I spoke up and so surprised by the reaction. You know, after overcoming mm. some resistance, um, I was able to persuade the staff at the Ontario Bar Association to come with me to develop CPD programs and and uh, the Mindful Lawyer series, and I was surprised in, with the media reaction too. Like I, I did the typical start of term interview with yeah. uh, Law Times that surprisingly was picked up and expanded upon in the Toronto Star. Yeah. Um, that because got, you were the first person to do this. Well, I think there were others, so it's, it gives me too much credit to say that, but it got a lot of attention, yeah. and then I got invitations to speak, and, and it, it just sort of ballooned from there. Yeah. So in the first the first year of this, during my term, I think I spoke 110 times. Oh, my goodness. Um, and uh, and uh, it's not an easy subject for me. I, I tell people now, even five years later, that it still takes a piece out of me because it has this self-triggering effect. I still Absolutely. feel embarrassed by it. But it also is cathartic. It, mm. it, it makes me feel, especially when I'm approached afterwards by others who feel the same way, that I'm helping them. And feeling that I'm helping them I feel like I have more self-worth and that my ability and my resilience and my own personal strength. Yeah. So, I, you know, so I get a lot ways. out of it. Yes. It takes it out of you, but it also gives you, it gives gives you motivation, gives you, gives you incentive. You know, part of your question is what cultural changes, mm. you know, ultimately all I want to do is make it easier to have an uncomfortable discussion mm. about your own mental health. You know, I, I, I wanted to demonstrate that if I could stand up in front of an audience of a few hundred people and disclose this undisclosable story, and someone in the audience could be brave enough to pick up the phone and talk to someone when they were feeling down or thinking they needed help, or having suicidal ideation, or crippling anxiety. And they could or, think of you and think it is possible to speak about it. No. That if I could do that, they could make the yeah. they can make the call. Or I invite them to be the person others come to yeah. when they need it. And yeah. so it was really about trying to chip away at the stigma which forms the foundation of the need for a cultural change. And I don't think we're near where we need to be, but I'm seeing changes across the profession, mostly amongst younger generations. Uh, well, uh, even what you mentioned earlier on, Orlando, about putting on CPD, which is um, ongoing professional education for lawyers, that yeah. there is interest enough and it is as 
you know, out of that sort of dark place where nobody talks about it enough, that they can be continuing professional education on this topic and, and more they, all the time. And they're filling rooms with it. Yes. You know, I just I just did a session for the Criminal Lawyers Association, and there were 800 people in the room. Wow! It used to be yeah. that you couldn't get anyone to look at a pamphlet, at a brochure, at a stand by Homewood Health on mental health, at one of the um, legal conferences that the Ontario yeah. Bar Association hosted. But now, 800 people will come up. Yes. And, like, and they have permission that they can think about it. Absolutely. And even that they can come into that room, because I can think of other issues in which there's been the similar kinds of problem of getting people to actually come and listen without believing that they're going to be stigmatized themselves for going to that session. If there's 800 people, there's plenty of places to hide. I visited law schools across the country in February, and almost all of them have either a therapist, or a clinician, a part-time, yeah. part-time a clinician, or yeah. sometimes and student wellness group that uh, that uh, puts on programs and support for, for students. And I've seen this from Victoria all the way to Dalhousie. So, Orlando, can I ask you this? Do you think that there is anything about the particular culture and environment of both law schools and legal practice, bearing in mind, of course, there's many different kinds of legal practice that, that you know, kind of assume private practices as the dominant model. That is going to make it more difficult or exacerbate mental health challenges that people already have. I can speak mostly uh, from the point of view of a a litigator. I spent 11 years in private practice as a litigator and in public practice as a litigator. So litigation uh, seems to, as a career, define itself on the basis of some classical male toxic uh, <laughs> aggression toxic qualities. Yeah. You know, you got to yeah. be strong. You got to be aggressive. You got to, you know, uh, you, you got to be in your face. All of these, you, you, you can't back down. You can't compromise, mm. you know, mm. these sorts of things. You can't settle, you know, we're going to, that kind of uh, characterization of what a litigator does means that, if you suggest publicly that you uh, suffer from mental health issues, depression, anxiety, you're crying out vulnerability, the antithesis yes. of strength, right. and you're going to lose clients uh, mm. because of mm. that. Mm. And there seems to be less room for this concept of a gentle but effective litigator right. who is able to resolve your dispute without running up the account uh, because of uh, unnecessarily aggressive tactics. Right. And I mean, just taking it a little further back again into the law school experience, because we know that many students at law school suffer from anxiety, from also from depression. Well, I, you know, I, there is a way in which we say that that is not a kind of valid life experience, you know, that, that somehow that will just as you described in the context of litigation, but I think even more broadly, there's a way in which we invalidate that as life experience, even though, in fact, it could bring people a greater and deeper understanding of at least some of their clients. Well, that's right. What I, what I see in law school and what happened to me is, first, law school has a way of defining success for you. 
So regardless of the reason that motivated you, the passion that brought you into law school, somewhere along the line you're told that to be successful you have to meet these certain markers, which can be, you know, Bay Street lawyer, uh, an income of such and such, living in a, you know, a posh neighborhood, uh, private practice at a, at a national, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you have to, you know, you have to make the honor, the you too. have to do, so all of these things, uh, you know, make you feel, I think, in an ultra-competitive environment with other type A personalities, you feel much less uh, successful and much less passionate about what drove you to law school in the mm. first place. And you abandon what you want to do and you pursue someone else's definition of success. The other thing I see is that pessimism is rewarded in law school. You learn to identify the catastrophic situation <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and, and, and yep. as a solicitor, try to, to contract your way out of it. As a litigator, try to blame somebody else for it. You know, and, and that skill is rewarded when you get into private practice. If you can avoid catastrophes or the next worst case scenario, you know, you ha- you're adding value to uh, your client. Uh, yeah, and part of what is being marketed to clients is yeah. you are going to have a catastrophe unless you do what I tell you. That's right. That's right. And and, and that's what makes them swallow sometimes the tough advice that you have to give as as a lawyer. Uh, the no's that they hear all the time and and resent is, is because you're 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 so risk averse. Yeah. Uh, that, but but that then becomes a personality defining characteristic of yours. That you're always looking at this negative catastrophic scenario. That you apply that kind of logic to your own Yourself. life. Yeah. And and uh, I think it diminishes the joy that you could otherwise experience with your personal life. Wow, that's that's so interesting. <laughs> so much more I would like to ask you about, but I I want to, I I don't want us to run out of time altogether talk about your new job because you have had a pretty interesting year this year, Orlando. Um, you ran for venture and access to justice was a key part of what you were you were campaigning for. And then you were offered the position that you are now um, undertaking, which is a very important one, something that at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project because you are working with what is called, to make sure everybody hears this, the Administrative Tribunal Support Service of Canada, and not just working with them, but you are now the head honcho. That is an agency that is very important for the tribunals as they start to develop more SRO-friendly and accessible processes and tools. And we've, we've been a little involved in this in the past, and we continue to be involved in working with the tribunals. So, I'm sure that you have lots of ideas at this point, even though I know you're just getting your feet under the table, about how to build support for self-represented litigants who are, of course, more and more and more numerous in federal tribunals. So can I ask you if it's possible for you to say just a little bit at this early stage about your own ideas and what kinds of policy possibilities you see going forward? There's so much there that it's hard to know where to start. Probably seeing the benefit of a lot of the work you've done already. But just to think of a starting point, you know, the fact that 
70 percent as a bench i heard this number a lot 70 percent of people have a legal problem that they don't go to lawyers and yeah. legal sales so yeah. part of the reason is they don't know that they have a legal problem but mm. imagine the kind of justice system we could have if we created one around that concept that 70% of its users are not represented. What would it look like? Yes. You know, for, first of all, I think you'd see things like I'm starting to see here in the tribunal sector spreading across the justice sector more broadly into the civil and criminal system, for example, the family law system. Where it's quite a problem. But, uh, for example, uh, navigators, an excellent idea that I'm seeing uh, get started here, where you have um, someone who's dedicated to your file who can help you navigate the system. Mm. Uh, can tell you when your deadlines are, can stay on the line yes. while you fill out the forms with them. Right. Yeah. You know, can make sure that it's it's filed in, in in the right places. The forms are all in plain language. You have an active registry system rather than a passive one who will call you when a deadline is approaching. When, when something's coming you, up. Yeah. You know, what do you want to do with this appeal? Yeah. You know, do, do yeah. you want to file uh, whatever it is, you know, I wouldn't use the word factum in a plain language registry uh, or justice, but, you know, that's the idea. And I think, like, if you do that, you create a justice system recognizing that most people aren't going to use lawyers, and that that lawyers' fees are scarier to them than an unfavorable result. Yes, yeah, And and they don't have a real choice. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'm really looking forward to, I hope, being able to, to work with you on, on some of these issues because, as I said, they are very, very central to the work that NSLP has been doing continues to do. But yeah. I want to ask you one more thing before I let go, Orlando, and this kind of brings us back to where we began, I suppose, in this conversation, and that is, to say that you know many of us who deal with chronic illness, and I, and I do myself as a, as a cancer patient, we all have to develop some strategies for dealing with the not so great days. And sometimes those not so great days really are not so great. And you know, I look at you and I look at your achievements and your accomplishments and what you're doing now in this this new position. Can you say anything about? what you have learned to be your best strategies, because I'm sure you have them for keeping yourself going through the bad days as well as the good days. It's a lifelong learning lesson into yourself. Um, You know, I've learned to be more intuitive about how I'm feeling. Mm. I use a 10-point scale where 10 is as good as it gets, something Mm. I've never experienced. Eight Mm. would be my best-case scenario. Six would be my normal, five, the onset of problems. And in each one of these levels, um, I have strategies, and and my family knows these levels, and so we can talk in shorthand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm feeling like a four today. That's right. right. And they know that at a four or five, I start to lose interest in hobbies, and I start to isolate myself. And there's things that I can do to keep me from falling below a three. Right. What I've learned is to save myself from myself, I can't let my mood fall below a three. 
the other thing I do is I keep a journal, which is mm. like it, I, 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 since 1986, actually. And I can see from that the ups and downs in my life. Yes. And that tells me that the lows are temporary, that there's always going to be a better day. Right, yes. And that gives yes. me hope. Along those lines, too, when I was feeling content and at peace and, and you know, the best case scenario, mm. I wrote a letter to myself saying you've made it remember this tough remember how you feel you know yes. you, you're going to make it to this feeling again and i read it when i'm feeling low and that tells me that no matter what my brain is telling me about how permanent and intractable this feeling is there are better days to come and i can tough it out and you can tough out almost anything if you know there's an end to it Orlando, well, thank you so good. much for this this has been an amazing conversation. I feel very privileged to have had it with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Elizabeth Roberts has been a self-represented litigant and is an access to justice advocate. Like many of those coming to court on their own, she has an invisible disability that makes self-representation especially difficult. In today's outro, Elizabeth reflects on how many Canadians face the challenge of cognitive and emotional disabilities and some relatively easy steps the justice system could take to assist them. The Canadian Mental Health Association reports that in any given year, one in five Canadians experiences a mental illness or addiction problem. And by the time Canadians reach the age of 40, one in two have or have had a mental illness. Considering Canada's population is over 37.5 million, that means almost 7.5 million Canadians are struggling with a mental health challenge. If you are suffering, you are not alone. There remains much work to do in changing the culture and mindset of the justice system and legal profession with respect to attitudes and stereotypes not only toward colleagues and frontline staff who are maybe suffering in silence, but toward the public, and in particular the lowly self-represented litigant who is far too often viewed as vexatious or difficult. We've heard from lawyer Orlando De Silva, a champion for workplace mental health advocacy, and Justice Gascon of the Supreme Court of Canada attributed his headline disappearance in May of 2019 to his experiences with depression and anxiety. Every day, thousands of Canadians face a legal matter of some sort. Many proceed to litigation. We know that 70% of these people are self-represented. One in five of them are suffering from a mental health challenge. Depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, PTSD, autism spectrum, Asperger's syndrome, grief or trauma, attention deficit and hyperactive disorders, early onset dementia, or a host of other underlying issues may present challenges. Parties may, in fact, develop post-traumatic stress symptoms as a result of their legal experiences. How can the justice system help make participants at all levels of a legal matter have a better experience, yet still process the tough decisions that need to be made? They can acknowledge that everyone present is human and have feelings, that they are there to help solve a problem, and that legal processes are understandably confusing and stressful. They can receive training to be alert for signs of underlying issues such as irritability, confusion, distractedness, lethargy, speech, and cognitive cues that may indicate an invisible disability 
rather than simply dismissing the conduct as difficult behavior. Eliminate ridiculing, bullying, and intimidation as a means to shut down a file or win a case. Instill respect and compassion and patience. Reduce interruptions and cross-talking when speaking. A party may have difficulty being succinct or following along with a more experienced justice and counsel. Allow extra time for parties to fully respond to questions. It may take them time to collect their thoughts and articulate them. Simplify processes and allow extensions of time for self-represented persons with disabilities and provide access to support persons to help organize and prepare documents properly. Properly prepared material saves time and costs. Give clear instructions broken down into simple steps. Avoid aggressive, harsh tones of voice and intimidating nonverbal communication. This will help with concentration and reduce trigger responses and panic attacks. Allow Mackenzie Friend courtroom companions who provide emotional support, note-taking, organizing and passing documents so the self-represented party can focus on the courtroom. Courtroom companions provide valuable debriefing after proceeding, allowing litigants to decompress emotionally and review what has occurred. Permit litigants to record all proceedings for personal use, to assist with remembering, helping them follow instructions, and for personal safety. Recordings provide transparency and help keep everyone's conduct in check. Allow for breaks as needed so that all parties may collect their thoughts and regroup. This allows the court the same benefit as well. In advance of proceedings, provide information regarding the human rights codes and accessibility services procedures. This will help litigants know they have a right to seek accommodations from the court and frontline staff and how to obtain it. Provide easy-to-find, plain-language resources such as the National Self-Represented Litigants Project, Primer for Persons with Disabilities, as an educational tool for all legal service providers, justices, and the public. Patience, compassion, awareness, flexibility, information, and resources helps reduce costs and saves time in the long run, and it reduces the possibility of expensive appeals. In Other News Welcome back to the In Other News segment of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. For any new listeners, this segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. In our first two episodes of this season, I mentioned some important stories that were released during our hiatus between seasons. Here are some important updates that have happened since our last episode. For our first story, we encourage all of our listeners to learn more about the movement that began in Wet'suwet'en over the construction of the Coastal GasLink Pipeline and has escalated as of February 6th with members of the First Nation being arrested by the RCMP. The Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs have asserted their rights regarding the use of their traditional territories, which are unceded. The unceded nature of the territories has legal ramifications, as recognized by the Supreme Court of Canada in two major cases, Delgamook and British Columbia in 1997, and Chilcote Nation and British Columbia in 2014. This is an issue that all of our listeners and all Canadians need to know about, and we should all reflect on the meaning of reconciliation and the nation-to-nation relationship that the Canadian government has previously spoken of. We also encourage you to check out an older episode of our podcast where we spoke to Professors Beverly Jacobs and Valerie Waboose about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We've linked to that episode and an article with images from across the country. 
For more coverage of protests, sit-ins, blockades, and marches across the country, look for the Twitter hashtag WhatSowetonStrong. For our second news story, the Law Society of Saskatchewan and the Ministry of Justice Legal Services Task Team has implemented amendments to the Legal Profession Act, thereby giving limited licenses to alternative legal service providers in the province. Quoting from an article on the story that we've linked to, Limited licensing is a unique approach, the first of its kind in Canada, that enables the Law Society to expand access to appropriately regulated limited legal services in a responsible and sustainable manner. The overall goal is to balance the need for enhanced access to legal services for underserved Saskatchewan citizens while ensuring public protection. We're excited to see this unfold and we're hopeful that more provinces will take a closer look at implementing flexible regulatory structures that promote access to justice. We'd also like to encourage all of our listeners to read an old blog post about the insidious nature of referring to legal service providers as lawyers and non-lawyers, and to take the pledge on our website. For our last announcement, Julie published a recent article on slaw.ca, Canada's online legal magazine. For any new listeners, the NSRLP has a recurring column on slaw.ca, and this article is our eighth article in the series. This particular article is about the value of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project, where Julie discusses some of the current and future aspirations of the project and mentions the need to ensure the permanence of NSRLP in Canada. Her article ends with a plea related to our funding target to raise a million dollars in 2020 to secure the stability of NSRLP going forward. I will repeat part of that plea here. We are reaching out to Canadians across the nation. We are in need of financial support through donations, visibility support through follows and shares of NSRLP social media accounts and web content, suggestions for potential partnerships to help our organization grow and flourish, and high-profile NSRLP champions who can speak up about our value. If you would like to help, please email representingyourself at gmail.com. Thank you all for your support. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next episode for more exciting conversations about access to justice.